Okay, the title of the message this morning is Be Separate. Be Separate. Last week, we spent most of our time exegeting uh, verses 16 through 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We took a dive into verse 21, and we didn't get quite finished, and so we will pick up there, okay? But please, let's begin. I know this probably gets old where Pastor Steve reads the passage and then I read the same passage over again, but I have to do that just to get reset. Um, Gives me a context, gives me a springboard to launch from. So beginning in verse 16, 1 Corinthians 10, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice... They sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be become shares in demons. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not, but not all things edify. Regarding verse 20... We saw last week that when unbelieving pagan Gentiles sacrifice to idols or to false gods, they are not sacrificing to gods at all, but to demons, demons whose influences and purposes are behind those pseudo-sacrifices, Paul says. Okay, you remember all that from last week? Um, Then... We looked at all of the specific ways in which the devil and demons can lead Christians and non-Christians astray. astray. Now, this morning, let's begin looking at verses 21 to 23. I'm not going to read it again. Talking about partaking in a table of demons and provoking the Lord Uh, to jealousy. And to that, I'll just ask, okay, do oil and water mix? Neither does idolatry and Christianity. They don't mix. When Paul says you cannot continually drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, he is, listen, he's describing someone there because this word is a present tense word. He's describing someone. He has someone in mind. It could be someone singular or someone plural, but that's what he means, okay? Apparently, there were people on the scene that were actively choosing to participate in idol feasts, and at the same time, they were continually uh, or continuing to actively participate in the Lord's Supper. Okay, when Paul says in verse 16, is not the cup of blessing which we bless 
a sharing in the blood of Christ, here's what you need to know. Pagans would often pour out a libation or drink offering to their make-believe gods. And in so doing, they really would be, according to Paul, putting forth a drink offered to demons. Paul says, no way. There's only room for one God on the altar of your heart. Second Corinthians, if you look at, not First Corinthians, go over to Second Corinthians, please, chapter 6. Now, with that on the front burner of your mind, that there's only room for one God on the altar of your heart, if you're a Christian... Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. Paul says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Bielel? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are all the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 17. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. By the way, Beliel, uh, in verse 15, comes from a Hebrew word that is personified here in the New Testament to mean the devil, okay? Now, please listen carefully. The phrase in verse 17, come out of their midst and be separate, is a reference to Isaiah 52. More specifically, Isaiah 52.11. Isaiah 52.11 is the account of the Israelites who are returning from exile in Egypt. And you see, when Jerusalem fell, okay, Many of the people were carried away to Babylon, but some of the people fled to Egypt, thinking they would be safe there. Jeremiah warned them not to do this, but many of them went to Egypt anyway, and they took Jeremiah with them against his will. For more on that, on your own, you can read Jeremiah chapters 42 and 43. But in Isaiah 52, God is promising to call back to the promised land the descendants of those who went down to Egypt. The the command to come out from the midst of them is a call to action. The people of Israel are commanded to forsake many Idolatrous habits 
that they may have picked up while in Egypt and to return to their promised land. At the same time, folks, this is a promise that God will be the one to bring them back when he deems the time to be right. With me? Paul quotes this Isaiah passage in reference to the Corinthian church. He is taking familiar wording, familiar wording to them, okay, and giving it a meaning in a new context. Just as the Israelites in exile were to put off idolatry that they might, they may have picked up while living in Egypt, so too the Corinthian believers are to lay aside the idolatry and sexual immorality that they were steeped in by virtue of living in Corinth. Paul is clearly telling the Corinthians here that they must separate themselves from the sins of the world. Now, leading up to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, Paul tells them, do not be bound or yoked together with unbelievers. That's verse 14. We often apply this verse to a believer marrying or about to marry an unbeliever, but it has a much wider application than just that, okay? In the context of the Corinthian church, Paul uses it to let these Christians know that they should have nothing to do with any participation in idolatry. Now, Paul is going to ask the Corinthians a series of rhetorical questions in order to demonstrate his rationale here, okay? And here's the questions. The first one is, based on 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? That's the question he asks. The next one is also the latter part of verse 14. What fellowship can light have with darkness? And then verse 15, what harmony has Christ with Belial, the devil? What does a believer, verse 15, have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols. That's verse 16. That final question, okay, reveals the heart of the matter here. Is there no agreement or fellowship between the temple of God and idols? The Christian should have nothing to do, obviously, with idol worship, ever. Why? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 tells us why. Paul says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy 
And that is what you are. Then, to further drive home the idea that Christians are the temple of God even more, Paul quotes from Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12, which, by the way, is also alluded to in Jeremiah 32, 38, and in Ezekiel 37, 27. It says this, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 2 Corinthians 6.16. The temple of God is where God dwells, and he says he will dwell among his people, making them the temple, right? It's logical. And we, Christians, are temples of God. God dwells in us. And since believers are, in fact, the temple of God, Paul concludes here, come out from them and be separate. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. Isaiah 52, 11 and Revelation 18, verse four. Christians should separate themselves from idol worship of every kind. That's the third time I repeated that. Just want to make sure I'm driving it home here. Um, It's very important that we remember here that Paul has in mind people who claim to be Christians and who are partaking in both tables, right? Look at our main text again, 1 Corinthians 10, 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, two cups. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons, two tables. The Christians only to be at one table and to only drink from one cup, the cup of the Lord. These people, the Corinthians that Paul is addressing, wanted it both ways. You can't have it both ways. If you remember, Paul already spoke to this matter, okay, of separation between those who obey the Lord and those who don't. And he spoke to that over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning, listen, this is important, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave off the world. In other words, I'm not talking about sinners in the world, okay? You wouldn't be able to go out of your house. You'd have to relegate yourself to a monastery. He says, but now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. He says, do not even eat with such people. Do not even eat with such Christians. So yes, the Lord wants his people to come out from being 
among them and be separate. Be ye holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Remember Leviticus 21.8, repeated by Peter in First uh, Peter 13-16. through 16. That means, first, foremost, that we should be separate from participation in sin. And second, we are to be separate from professing believers who are living in habitual sin. Especially believers that have been warned about their sin and refuse to truly repent and turn away from their sin. They will pull you down every time. Bad company corrupts good character. Beyond that, as Christians, we are not called to get involved or intertwined with or in relationships with unbelievers that can lead to compromise, okay, in our Christian walk, unequally yoked with unbelievers. On the other hand, common sense, okay, dictates the Bible, or I'm sorry, the biblical understanding that we cannot, as I said before, remove ourselves from the world of unbelievers. And so that would cause us to lose all evangelistic efforts as well and influence on the unsaved and unchurched, again, thereby relegating us to some sort of monastic existence where we hide away. There needs to be a balance. And speaking of balance, it can be argued that in the United States, at the hands of a, uh, we'll call them very popular fundamentalists in Christianity in the 20th century, not the 21st, 20th century fundamentalism was marked by believers being so separate from the world that there, there wasn't enough evangelistic interaction at all with the unsaved and unchurched. If you don't understand what I mean by fundamentalism, look it up. We're talking, you know, very legalistic, you know, no movies, no dancing, no makeup, no, you know, very legalistic. The 21st century which I'll call the beginning of post-modernity. There's modernity, post-modernity. That's where we're at now. Um, may continue to be marked by Christians who are so entrenched in and entangled by worldliness that it is difficult at times to tell the difference between them and non-Christians. There's a difference between the two. Either way, evangelism is stalled and left unwanted. And that's why there must be a balance that cannot be surmised necessarily by do's and don'ts. But instead, every Christian should decide. We're all smart enough to decide if we're influencing the world for God or not. And if we're not, we need to make the proper choices accordingly, right? Just change course. 
Okay, so let's move on to verses 22 through 24 of 1 Corinthians 10. Beginning in verse 22, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Who first provoked the Lord to jealousy? You guessed it, those pesky Israelites, right? Um, Paul is still maintaining this train of thought of the Israelites here in our text. And if you look in your Bibles, you will see that one of the cross-references for the beginning of 1 Corinthians 10.22 is Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21, which I'll read. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And just in case you were unconscious for the past 30 seconds, okay, but now you're awake. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, okay, says a lot of the same stuff. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love and keep my commandments. Okay, the Lord is in no way ambiguous in regard to what he expected from Israel. And the Lord is in no way ambiguous in regard to what he expects from us. The Lord is in no way inconsistent. You hear people say things all the time like, Oh, I'm glad we're not serving the God of the Old Testament. He was lean and mean and big and bad boy pointing that gun at me. Uh, I'm glad that we serve the God of the New Testament. He at least gives us three steps towards the door. I'm quoting a Leonard Skinner song. Come on. (laughs) Nobody picked up on it. Okay. Okay. I try, I really do. (laughs) Okay, the point is we act like there's two different gods. There's the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Okay, that's what we do. Okay, newsflash, they're the same God. They're not different gods, okay? This is the entirety of Paul's foundational thought in our text. This is what the whole text is about, okay? We are serving the same God as these Israelites, We're doing the same things the Israelites did. God punished the Israelites. Hello? Don't let God punish you. How do I avoid that? Do what's right. Obey his commands. Okay. The God of the Old Testament, as I said, is the God of the New Testament. 
And that God will deal with us, his chosen people in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, the exact same way he dealt with those under the Old the old Covenant. Okay? He's going to give you chance after chance after chance, mercies upon mercies upon mercies. I can tell you from firsthand experience. He's going to give you that, all that stuff to get right with him. He waits and he waits. He's patient. His patience is outrageous, knows no bounds. But then there comes a point where he says, enough is enough. Okay, enough is enough, Mr. and Mrs. Corinthian. If you still won't respond in obedience, just like the Israelites neglected to do, I'll smack you upside the head, just like I did to them, to get your attention. Just like a father does with a child. Father disciplines a child. I'm not saying smacks him in the head. I'm just saying father disciplines a child. Mother disciplines a child. Okay, why? Because they love him. Because they don't want him to go wayward. So, as Christians, choose this day whom you will serve, the false idols that can't breathe, taste, or smell, or the God of the universe. So, in addition to this, I think that as I was preparing... Many Christians today make a major mistake. They assume that because they are serving God under the new covenant, that they are exempt from obedience and exempt from chastisement. But nothing can be further from the truth. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. Jesus said, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. John 14, 21. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. That abode, you've heard me say this before, Uh, The word abiding is in the name of our church. The word abide means to stay and remain. So when Jesus says, my father will love you, we will come and make our abode. We will stay and remain in you. He who does not love me does not keep my words. I mean, children do what their parents tell them because they love their parents. Children who do not do what their parents tell them not all the time, not in every instance, but they're leaning towards, can't stand my parents right now. They're on my last nerve, so I'm not going to do this, okay? Um, in 1 Corinthians 10, 20 and 21, our text, No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord, table of demons. Okay, let's compare that to Deuteronomy 
chapter 32, verses 17 and 18, a book that was written a few thousand years prior to John, okay, and to 1 Corinthians. Deuteronomy 32, 17, they sacrificed to demons, they sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. Verse 18, you neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. Now, 1 Corinthians 10.22, our text. Or do we not provoke the Lord to jealousy? So we had the Israelites in Deuteronomy provoking the Lord to jealousy. Paul says the Corinthians or the Christian who acts this way is provoking the Lord to jealousy. And then he says we are not stronger than he, are we? Compare that with Deuteronomy 32.16. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They did what in verse 17? They sacrificed to demons who were not God. So what do we see here? Yet again, Paul is using the Israelites and comparing them to the Corinthians. And they can also be compared to us, to our lives. And I don't think that Paul could get any clearer here, all right? He, um, he compares the idols, the sacrifices, the demons, the jealousy, the chastisement. He hit every point. And we have to ask ourselves, okay, those are the comparisons. Are there any contrasts between the Israelites and the Corinthians slash us. Any contrasts? Of course there are. The Israelites had a law that they couldn't keep. We have the one, capital O, who kept the law for us. That's a pretty big contrast. Verse 19, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, and spotless the blood of Christ. For he has foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that, you, so that your faith and hope are in God. First Peter 1, 19 through 21. We obey Christ's commands because we love Christ. We love him because he saved us. He saved us by sacrificing himself for our sins. All we have to do, all we are called to do, is believe that he did it. Well, when I see secular historians like Pliny the Younger and Tacitus saying that he did it, and they lived when he lived, or at least close to when he lived, I think there's something to that. Jesus certainly wasn't make-believe. He was a real person that walked the earth. 
okay? And so we have faith, we have belief, but it's a gift, right? Faith alone, grace alone. It's a gift from God to us. What do we read in Ephesians? Out of the kind intention of God's will, not because of anything we did. Because if it wasn't anything we did, we could boast in ourselves. And not, none of this salvation has anything to do with ourselves. So let's boast in Christ, our salvation. Let's boast in his finished sacrifice on the cross for our sins, his spilled blood for our sins. Because we're the new Israel of God. We're the new Israel of God, the church. And we've been bought with the precious blood of the Lamb of God. Let's pray.